Welcome to Geocache Adventures, the podcast where we explore everything geocaching. I'm your host, Shadow Dragon One. I love geocaching. If you're listening to this, you probably love it too. If you enjoy the podcast, consider sharing it with somebody that you think would love it. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram and Facebook, and there's a Facebook group as well, so you can join in the fun and share your adventures. There's also a Patreon page that you can join and unlock exclusive content. Hey everybody, Amy Shadow Dragon one here. Ever since I spoke with Lee Katz about the travel bug missions, I've been thinking a lot about travel bugs and a lot about an interview I did in season two. Uh, you may remember Max B on the river travel bug tours. And I really feel like that ties together really well with the last episode. So I thought it would be really fun to revisit that episode with Max B on the river and talk about his travel bug tours and talking about taking travel bugs and actually doing something more with the logs that you write for them when you're logging your travel bugs. So this is a reposting of that interview with Max B on the river. The audio does sound a bit different. It is an older interview. So I do apologize for that, but it was a really great interview and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Hello everybody. It's Amy Shadow Dragon One here and with me right now is Team Max B on the river. Thank you both so much for joining me on this podcast episode. So your guys's profile says that you are a travel bug tour group? Yes. Um, one of the things that we started doing many years ago, we started cash in 2003, and we started moving quite a few travel bugs. I was traveling just a ton on business. I was flying 100,000 miles a year on business. And as I pick up the travel bugs, we wanted to do was make the experience of the travel bug, something that the owner enjoyed. And you, know, you get owners that might be kids watching their travel bugs or adults watching their travel bugs. And we were trying to do things that make it interesting. So we had this idea that if we said, made it up that they were going on this group tour and visiting different places, that might be interesting to them. So we started naming the tour groups. Um, I, and again, I, I, flew just a ton. So I might be in Texas one week and Minneapolis the next and California the next and New Jersey the next. And so we might call it the Golden Gate Tour or the Texas Oil Gas Tour or um, you know the Frozen Snow of Minneapolis Tour or whatever we thought of. And we would take a picture of that group of travel bugs that we had that week. And you're sometimes very corny pictures, but then we'd play that up. And um, hopefully, you know, hopefully got a smile out of the, the people that owned them. I love it. That sounds amazing. Oh. So to backtrack a little bit, how did you first get started in the geocaching? Um, had a friend who um, geocached, actually a longtime friend, and we were over to Milwaukee to help my son move between apartments. And he'd ask us to use our van to help move. And we said, it's fine, you may use our van, but you know, you need buddies and a keg of beer to move move your belongings. <laughs> we're not, you know, we're not gonna move your belongings. And so we called our friend from Wisconsin who we used to live near and said, Come on over for lunch. And he says, Hey, I got this new hobby. He'd never found a geocache as yet. So out we went. And it turned out we found a couple of very difficult, you know, we were dumb and happy. We didn't know what any of the ratings were but we found a couple of very difficult caches that day and because i was traveling so much i would sit in hotels and read novels night after night after night in the hotels and this turned out to be a really good fit i could do it after my day of work i could do a few geocaches and then go to the hotel and if i had to work in the hotel i did but i could work later into the evening so that, that's sort of how we got started in the geocaching oh that's neat it's neat that it got to work with your your job that way, and now you've cashed from your profile. It and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you've been to all 50 states. Correct. I think we are the sixth cashier to do all 50 states. You've been to 3,120 counties out of 3,148 counties in the United States. 
and multiple countries. So, so yes, we've, we've been to the, the 3,020 counties we cashed in, but that's all of the counties of the 48 contiguous states. We've done four of the five counties of Hawaii, but the fifth county does not have a cash in. It's a leper colony. Does not allow any caches in it. Oh, wow. Uh, in fact, you can't go in unless oh, wow. you're a certain age. And then we've cashed in Alaska, but there's a lot of open land in Alaska that we've not, not cashed in. Wow, that's, that's amazing. I hope to get anywhere close to all 50 states. When I, I still haven't left my, my own state yet, personally, <laughs> geocaching. So <laughs> I, I, we had planned a trip that we were hoping to take this past summer in 2020, and that obviously got canceled for, because of the pandemic. So we'll see what 2021 brings. So you mentioned you originally started caching through work. So I imagine then you were mostly caching solo? We, we, we did both. And we oh, do a okay. lot of caching as a team. If I was traveling for work alone, I would go out and do some caches. Uh, Maxine occasionally did some trips on her own. She went to Germany a few years ago with one of the neighbors and took, you know, took the neighbor lady and they cached uh, across Europe. She also went to Alaska a few years ago and took actually a neighbor lady and another lady with her and they, they, they cashed in Alaska. So, um, but most of our caching is as a team. Okay. So you've moved 30,000 or more travel bugs. That's, that's impressive to even come across anywhere near that many travel bugs. Yeah. And, and times are different in travel bugs. For a long time, there were quite a few travel bugs. I'm gonna use the term out in the wild, out where you would pick them up in patches. And uh, we would move them. And because we moved them and did things with them that people thought were fun, folks would get them into our hand. I ended up with kind of a network of people around the country, for instance, in the Dallas area. And I was in the Dallas area every four to six weeks. There were a couple cashers there that liked travel bugs. And they would gather up travel bugs around the Dallas area and they would arrange to meet me at some designated parking lot or park. And we'd hand off sometimes as many as 50, and they would get different travel bugs that weren't in their area, and they would send me some from their area to go someplace else. Um, so we, we did a lot of travel bugs, but there were more around. For a long time, and I don't know if you picked up on this, we moved more travel bugs than anybody else in the world. Um, starting in, in January 18th of 05, we'd moved our 1630th travel bug and became the top travel bug mover in the world. And we carried that on until early 2012 after our 23,000th travel bug, and then someone passed us. That's amazing. The people who passed us at that point in time, that was when um, geocaching changed what logging a travel bug meant. And you could just discover trackables mm -hmm. and literally not move them. And um, that's when the people started passing us as far as the numbers of trackables that they had discovered. But we're, we worked very hard and, and only discover maybe one or two trackables that people ask us to go through and do that we've met and are friends with. Um, other than that, we literally move every trackable that we have in our possession. So we, re we retrieve it and then we place it in another cache. Oh, so early on, the discovering option wasn't a thing. Correct. No. It wasn't there at all. And oh, in I fact, didn't know that. In those days, if you wanted to do the equivalent of discovery, you had to pick it up into your possession and then drop it back into the cache, which was a lot of work. But we, we made the decision that our values were, if we were going to log it, we were going to move it. And so we did that. In fact, that sort of gets down to the number of miles. We've moved travel bugs 51 million miles. And sometime early on, there were the, the lady who had moved more, the most travel bugs ahead of us, we were at an event and she was just, again, equivalent of discovering, picking them up, logging them and dropping them back into the, into the event cache. Um, at an event, we thought that just doesn't feel right to us. And so I, I had a, actually two trips to California very close together in December of 04, I think it was. And you know, California and back is 4,000 miles round trip, something like that. 
but then twice in the same month. So that was like 8,000 miles. So I thought, boy, that's a lot of miles. And I went into this lady's profile and looked at the travel bugs she'd moved and how many miles each had been moved. And they were two, three, four, zero, zero, zero. Um, and realized that the, the roughly 100,000 miles I'd moved in about a month was way more than other people. Um, and then being anal, we kept a spreadsheet and we've written down how many miles we moved each travel bug. It's not something you can look up, but we've, we've tracked that for all these years. Wow, that's, that's amazing. So how, how do you figure out who is the top travel bug mover? At, at the time, and it doesn't exist anymore, okay. uh, the gentleman, I think out of Texas, who would go through and look at profiles and he compiled this list. Um, Okay. And we kept track of it, but then somewhere along the way he quit doing it. But we were, you know, kind of so high in it you could see it. And now, if you look at people's profile, what it shows for travel bugs are a combination of discovered and moved. Yeah. So it's very hard to see now. Yeah, I I love travel bugs and all the different trackables, and I love looking at those maps and seeing all the places all over the world where they've been sort of living vicariously through the travel bugs, seeing all those different locations. So you kind of touched a little bit on the types of tours that you kind of did. If you were going to the area, you would sort of call it like that you said, mentioned like the Texas oil tour or the, the snow tour or something. Were there any specific kind of single tours that just really stuck out in your mind for some reason? Yeah, a, a couple that we had fun. When, and again, because I was going out every week, I would get home on a Thursday night maybe and be headed out Monday and we'd be trying to think of what we should have called the tour coming home and the tour going out. And I often tried to stretch Maxine's ability to come up with the right props because the props were corny props. Um, but we had two opportunities to go to Europe, I think in 2005, I might have my year wrong. Uh, one of them was 2004. And so one of them, I suggested, well, we're going to Germany. You ought to make a little lederhosen for each of these travel bugs. So she's you know, making a little doll lederhosen to put on the travel bugs that were shaped that you could put a lederhosen on. And then a, another trip, another point during the year, uh, we had a trip to France, a business trip, and we both got to go on that. I, had, I flew so much that I had a lot of air miles, so I could take her along different places. And we... Um, made little um, berets oh. <laughs> for, the, for the travel bugs. And you know, they had fun with it. And again, it was about having fun for the travel bug owner. And we would, we would go to big events years later and we, we, we worked the travel bug area at the Geo Woodstocks for many years, um, like most of the years. And at those events, we'd have some stranger walk up and you know, introduce himself and say, you moved my travel bug. You took it to you know, this place in Germany, or you took it to this place in the Netherlands, or you took it here. And they'd remember that. And that, that put a smile on our face. Did something that gave them joy. Um, Minneapolis. And she had a, um, was a clown. He, you know, he did clown for parties and stuff. Lee Apple Green was his cashew name. But his little girl was disabled, and somehow I got a hold of her travel bug, took it, took it with me for, you know, several weeks. Took, you know, took it to several places and posted the pictures. And we got this handwritten note in crayon, you know, "Hey Maxine, you're the greatest. Thank you for moving my travel bug." Oh, you know, that doesn't tug at somebody's heart. I don't know what would. That is amazing. Yeah, yeah. and that, and that's, you know, to to us, that's what it was about. You know, it didn't matter how many miles we moved them or how many places it was, you know, we did things for people. We had another, and I'll just go off on another side story. I picked up a travel bug in Wichita, Kansas. It's a lot of years ago. And it wanted to go to Charlottesville, Virginia. And I had a facility in Charlottesville, so I knew I would get there. I just didn't know the next trip that would go to Charlottesville. And so I put a note on it and said, okay, it looks like I can get it to Charlottesville may take a couple of months and really didn't get a response from the travel bug owners. But some time went by and you know, meantime, I ended up with a, uh, a trip scheduled to Charlottesville. 
So I said, no, no. I said, okay, I'm going to be in Charlottesville next week. Is there some place you want me to drop this travel bug or some place you want me to meet you, to hand it to you and that? And, and then I got a note back. And this family had moved from Ontario, Canada, Ontario, Canada Toronto or someplace. Um, the husband was a professor, was going to school, and he was going to now go to the University of Virginia to go to school or go on to school or to teach. And the family moved there. So they started this, this travel bug to you know, get to their new home. And I don't remember what it's called. You knew it a few minutes ago. Um, Marvin the Moose. Marvin the Moose. And so I, I sent him this note and said, I'm going to be there. And so they, they make arrangements and we end up meeting at ice. I want to do someplace public so they wouldn't be uncomfortable with some stranger. So we got to this ice cream place and, uh, and the little girls who were maybe six, six and five, little, little girls, you know, had this sign, you know, welcome home, Marvin the Moose. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that they, they brought in. And I mean, just touching, and because this is something they launched, and now it you know, got back to them in their new home. Um, and I and I was trying to be a nice guy, so I bought the little girl some ice cream. I just thought that was Aww. appropriate. And before long, the littlest one of the ten, and she may not have been four, but she she was little. Next, you know, she's got chocolate ice cream cone in her hair and her face, and I thought her mother was about to skill, kill me for you know for getting them these ice cream cones and that, but. But again, that's that's the memories about things we did. There's a lot of travel bugs we moved and neither here nor there, but those are the ones that are that are special to us. That that's an awesome story. I absolutely love it. <laughs> I'm I'm a mom of a six year old myself and I something like that would just make his day, you know, is that's that's the fun kind of things I love to hear about. That's the amazing stories that geocaching has helped people create. That's so cool. You had mentioned prior that you guys ran the travel bug trading area at geo woodstock events yes the, the the big mega event that's held each year uh, around the country it, it, it started out there was a there was an event called midwest geo bash and we were involved in starting midwest geo bash and just a little while into it you know started discovering people wanted to trade travel bugs at these events and initially it was just people threw things on a table and tried to grab them and we recognized the need for travel bugs to go the right direction if the owner wanted it to go to grandma's house in maine you ought to try to facilitate it moving towards maine and not just randomly whoever picked it up though it still might do that and so we set up a system where i think the first time was a round table had north south east west and then a travel bug that was anywhere went in the middle um, and then over time, we sophisticated it with bins and, you know, in Europe and Africa and Northwest U.S. and Southwest U.S., just different places. And then the, the mega events, the, you know, the, the big events, um, we, we went to the Geo Woodstock in Texas, and I can't remember what year it was, um, 2005 maybe, and got asked to help work the travel bug area there. And then years after that, we had basically ahead of time, the organizing committee would ask us if we would, would do it for their mega event. And so we ran it every year, really up until this year when Geo Woodstock didn't happen. It was supposed to happen in British Columbia this year. And, um, but to do that, it took a, you know, a lot of organization, a lot of equipment. We needed a gang of volunteers and we would coordinate with the, with the organizers of the Geo Woodstock to get the volunteers for our area. And then we would run you know, that part of it. We'd get the, the volunteers assigned to difference in that. And it was work, but it was one of those things that we enjoyed doing and something where we could be giving back to the hobby that we love so much. So we, we've done it for, and we've done it for a couple other mega events, other places. The um, first going caching in, in Georgia, we ran the travel bug area for. Uh, we ran, helped run one up in, um, Canada one year, but just just one of those things that we've enjoyed doing. When when it was in St. Charles, I think you're from St. Charles or near St. Charles, Missouri. Jill Woodstock was there ten years ago, plus or minus, and um, Al Franks or Larry Franks or something like that. And he may not be active anymore, but I think he was part of the committee for the Jill Woodstock, and he started 
lobbying with us a couple of years ahead of time to ask us if we would help run the area for that event. Okay. So are there any hopes or plans to be able to start doing that again post pandemic? Um, the, there's a Geo Woodstock scheduled. They, they postponed the one in British Columbia um, till this year. Don't know that it'll happen or not happen. Um, we probably are, are reaching the end of us doing it. We're getting old and to the point where we probably can't do it. It is, you know, it is a lot of work, but it's, it's one of those things we've enjoyed doing um, and have had a lot of other people help us and made, made great friends all over the world through geocaching. We've had, we've just made, we've made fabulous friends all over the country and all over the world. So you, you mentioned that you're in our, in our emails previously, you mentioned that the, the events are your favorite types of caches. Did I get that right? Yeah. And, and I, we, we, we like challenge caches, but the events to us have been great. We, we've, attended in events in 50 states and in uh, something like 11 countries, 13 countries. And um, of course, each event you meet, meet other cashers and you know, that, that becomes the value. I mean, I would rather stand and talk to somebody and make friends with somebody about geocaching than to go find three more caches. And, and we've had the opportunity to do that. Um, we, we met a couple, we went to an event in Australia, and I'm just gonna ramble here a minute, but we'd attended this event in Australia in 2008. And they did a monthly pub event there and we were gonna be there on the right dates and had contacted them and they had a couple of their cashers literally come to the hotel and meet us and walk us down the street to get into the right, you know, into the right bar and, and had fun. And at the end of the event, they took us out geocaching. And that, I mean, that was, that was a nice time and made some friends there. Um, but there were some caches that we got introduced to that sat across the table from us. The summer of 2008, so 10 years later, I can get that right, no, summer of 2018, 18. 10 years later, we were out in Utah and we were trying to do the oldest cache in Utah, which, which is way up on top of a mountain, kind of was gonna be beyond our ability, but we're doing it and we posted a note on the cache page that. You know, if somebody wanted to go with us, hike with us, you know, we'd enjoy it. Here's the date we're going to do it. And we get, we get this note from these people from Australia. And it turned out it didn't work for us. But as we went back and forth, we realized this was the couple who sat across the table from us at the 10 years earlier, 2008, in Adelaide, Australia. Again, small world, but it's the same couple. And so although we didn't get to go do that oldest cash, we ended up meeting and having dinner and talking about half the night with them. And we've got various stories like that where we've met other people from someplace else and then years later connect with them again and just, you know, made friends. You know, you, you, you made an acquaintance to start with, but then now you've made friends years later, again, from all over the world. That's a really cool story. That's, that's the valuable part of geocaching. I mean, isn't how many caches you find is how many caches you find, but it's, to me, it's the, it's the friends we make. That's really cool. I've been able to meet a couple cachers while out caching. And then of course this whole pandemic has kind of put a damper on any events, but I am hoping to be able to do hopefully some events this current year in 2021. I've talked to a lot of people that have uh, kind of talked about how the pandemic has change geocaching for the current time because the events aren't happening so much but there's been a lot of newer cachers as well because of it and it's interesting to see how it's affected the geocaching game yeah and we in michigan we we there was a moratorium on events for a while but then our reviewers kind of got together and decided there's no reason you can't do an event now with, with limits with precautions. We're all adults and we all make our own choices at the risk and the precautions that we're going to take. And so we've been having events. We had one last weekend and we met in a parking lot and we kept our distance from each other, but yet you still could talk with your friends. But, and you mentioned newer cashers. We have had an awful lot of brand new cashers doing our caches that we own 
And it's kind of too bad because the event is that opportunity for that new cashier to go meet those people that put out the caches, go meet and interact with somebody they're having trouble with a cash, somebody who's already understands, okay, look at it this way, or you know, here's the trick to that cash. And um, when you start talking about you know, other, other things that you might solving a geocaching puzzle, these other cashers there in the area start learning that or have the years of experience that they kind of know, you know, this cashier hides it this way. And so with these newer cashers, we sent out, we, we had one of the um, celebration events. We held it in June or so, but we sent out a note to something like 40 new cashers that had done our caches in the last few months and invited them. And we had a total of two cashers that showed up that were the new cashers. And again, we've had been having events and interacting with folks. And you know, some of the cashiers are choosing not to attend anything. Others are you know, taking whatever precaution they feel appropriate for them. Um, we, um, in June, this was when we finished all the counties of the continental United States. But as soon as they opened up Montana and Idaho, we headed west. And we felt like we could go geocaching and, and take precautions and protect ourselves. Um, getting food to eat was a little bit tricky in some places. Other places it was normal. Um, but mo you know, Montana is a pretty big state with not a lot of people in it. So we could do a lot of caching and not run into other people, not have to have close contact. So you know, we've chose to try to keep life more like normal. And that's worked out in Michigan. I know some other places, the state's guidelines have kept people squeezed pretty thin. We in, um, in April, I think, we drove to Iowa to go to an event because Michigan didn't have an event. Iowa's having one. And so we drove to Iowa and they had a hiking event and we hiked through the woods, you know, separated from other people, but we, we got to attend an event that month. Illinois he over, has been pretty locked down right near us. And then St. Louis County, I'm just west of it in St. Charles County and St. Louis County has had a lot of spikes and various forms of lockdowns and it's, it's an odd time. There has been a couple events around here and I did actually get to attend my first event. I think it was November timeframe and they had it at a local park and we were able to stay social distance and they said, Hey, wear a mask. If you're not feeling well, don't show up. So I did get a chance to meet four or five cashers that way, but from what they were telling me, usually their events are fairly bigger than than what they had a turnout for. So you're, you're right, a lot of cashers are definitely treating it differently the way that they feel like they need to, which everybody should do their own. But I've only been cashing actively for not quite a year and a half yet. So it's been, trying to think the word of it to, to look for, it's kind of an odd time to have really gotten into caching right before the pandemic and then to see how it's changed for us because of the pandemic. Well, and, and stick with it. You know, one of the one of the advices I give a lot of new cashers is, first off, you get out of it what you choose. We've chose to move a lot of travel bugs. We've had the opportunity to travel, you know, a lot of the country, a lot of the world. And, that, and that's because of jobs and, you know, just opportunity to do that. But for some folks, caching is go out and hike in a park once a month and maybe find a cache. And that's what they choose to do. That's what they do. There's others that want to go find hundreds of them. There's others that want to do puzzle caches because they like solving puzzles. So you find what, what it is that strikes your interest and you do the things that, that, that becomes valuable to you. And over time they change. You know, as our times went by, we, we weren't trying to do counties. And at one point the, the job I had, you know, we'd been to a lot of counties, but the job I had, they, they divested our division and suddenly I was a free agent and had time and there were people doing counties of Michigan. We thought, well, boy, we've been all over Michigan, but we haven't done all the counties. Let's, let's go do that. And we spent a couple of weekends trying to fill in the counties of Michigan. And then we filled in the counties of Indiana and then we sort of kept, kept plugging away at it. Um, and when I got back and had a job again, the, the new job I had took me to Ohio and it took me to Virginia and it took me to Mississippi. And so we've did a lot more. 
but it's just it, it's whatever you get out of and what it is that you like to do yeah that's that's one of the great things about geocaching is you can kind of make what you want out of it there's so many different types of caches and difficulty and terrain combinations and you can make it each your own for everybody where a lot of hobbies are pretty hard set in the rules and geocaching truly is for anybody and everybody it's it's a pretty neat sport or hobby or i'm I'm really not sure what the correct classification for it is to be honest with you yeah, i don't know either just taking a look at my notes here you guys i mean you, your profile is just just i have to admit i'm pretty awestruck when i look at your profile and i see all the different cash types you've done and see all the different places you've got to do it's it's kind of awe striking to me it's it's pretty amazing and we've been doing it for a long time you know starting in 2003 and that's 20 roughly 20 years almost 20 years of geocaching and when we started i remember the first time that we you know looked at the caches around us and in those days you could look at your map and it basically lit up every cache anywhere in the area and you can kind of see that now but it'd be like back and way out and i think that there was something like 100 caches within 100 miles there weren't very many geocaches and so you go get them and then you go get a few more and as you had time and were interested you go do something else and it, it's changed a lot through the years these other cache types some have come and gone during the time we've done it and so and some of them we enjoyed and some of them eh, didn't matter that much. Um, some we didn't do as much because so often the final of a multi might be missing. So when we traveled, we didn't try to do a multi away from home. That was something that too often you struck out on. But again, as, as time goes by, your interests change, your, the things that are valuable to you change. And so that's, that's, it's just progressed naturally for us. Has there been anything and geocaching that has changed that has stuck out to you as being really positive positive well probably some of the things that and and unfortunately they've gone out and i think that one of the things that they just recently did when they um did a moratorium on challenge caches and then it was for over a year that you couldn't publish any challenge caches and they put in new rules we were very concerned that they were going to very much limit what you could do with challenge caches. And, but when we saw the, the new rules that came out, um, we understood them. We felt, okay, we would have liked to have seen a couple other things, but that's all right. What they've done with them is okay. And um, just more recently when they've gone through and added in the new, um, attribute for challenge caches, making it easier to find those challenge caches. Um, it's been nice because the fact that now we can go through and and find them a little easier um, if we're going someplace. But it's it's given another type of challenge that you could put out there that with the new rules you weren't allowed to do. You couldn't anymore go through and and look for caches for challenges based on the name of the word challenge in them. So they became off limits of being able to use and create a challenge for people who were looking for them. With the new attribute, now you can go through and create challenges based on how many challenges you have found. We've got two in our area that we placed. One was for finding 300 challenges. Um, any place in the world. The other one is we like to do a lot of challenges that push the boundary and make people have a goal for them to set to complete. So we do a lot of um, type caches, challenges for type caches and um, counties, and now the challenge caches, that you have to find so many caches within five or 10 states. So you're going outside of your normal area, gives you a chance to grow and explore our country. 
um, and things because of the fact that there are a lot of things that we found as we were traveling all the counties of the US that there's a lot of unknown country and beautiful areas that people would never would never visit if it hadn't been for us going geocaching. We, we were at an event quite a few years ago and there were some brand new cachers at the event. And we have, again, some, some pretty high-end challenges. We have a challenge for going caching in four continents. We have a challenge for caching in all 50 states, which is a whole little side story on its own. But this event was put on by some brand new cachers. And we made a point of getting there because there's new cachers. We wanted to be able to interact with them and have them get to know us. And we invited some of the other active cachers in the area again, so these new people would feel welcome. But they were kind of complaining again to me that, geez, you put out a challenge for all these continents and all these states, and you know we don't really travel anywhere. Those these are impossible for us. And again, I thought, well, anybody could put out these other challenges; they're easier. But as I reflected on it over the next several days. I thought, well, that maybe that's right. And so we put out, I think, three challenges to stretch the brand new cacher. You know, we put one out for finding like six different types of caches, not all in one day that some people have a challenge, but these different types of caches. And we included a benchmark in it because not everybody has done a benchmark and knows what they are. And so that, that's what we did. That would stretch them a bit. We put out a challenge for finding caches with so many favorite votes on them. Again, that causes them to start seeing the caches with favorite votes are something somebody else thought was a good cache. It causes them to maybe go see what people think are the better caches and maybe they expand their, their mind towards what is a better cache. Um, I don't remember what the third one is right here, cold. But we, we put out these three caches. Oh, we put out one, the um, ABC, to go look for caches starting with different letters of the alphabet that were allowed at that time yeah that were allowed at that time so trying to get things and and expand out their horizons and I, and I think that's good i think the the more experienced geocachers can do things to help the others and like i say to start off i was you know, wasn't sure because other people could put any of these out you have to be you have to be able to qualify for the challenge before you put out the challenge now now and so it seemed like you know, almost anybody could qualify for those. And I was putting out ones that were a stretch for some pretty busy cashers. The other thing that has happened over the years is the Groundspeak folks have put, at times, put a lot of value into what people were saying in the forums. And there's a lot of people that get in the forums that hide behind their computer and want to complain about things. And they're not even necessarily active geocachers, but they're in offering their opinion on whatever topic they may offer it on. And so there was a while when group was taking a lead off these forums and not coming to events and talking to the real cashers. And I think over I have to start contacting some of the more experienced cashers, but I think that they were focused on this thing and they and they want to get new cashers. That's income to the ground speed folks. Um, but they have to be careful that they don't isolate all the existing cashers. Because again, we're one that paid for three accounts and we keep paying for three accounts year after year. And many of the new cashiers will buy their account and maybe in six months decide this isn't fun for them and that's fine. And, and they will go away. So I, you know, I think you can gain, you know, I think of how many people I've showed geocaching to and, and got them involved in geocaching versus what just somebody blind might stumble onto. Now that's that's our opinion on things, but it's it is important. I think that's why the events are important, where people can interact with the other cashers and start learning and make the friends. And uh, we had some cashers here a few months ago that we'd met at some event from Iowa, and they wanted to go to New York and get the oldest cache in New York, and we wanted to go to New York. So well, let's let's go, and off we went to New York and got the oldest cache in New York which was just a goal that we both, we'd all had set. I'm rambling, I'm sorry. <laughs> I love hearing it, this is amazing to me. So obviously community is very important to you guys, the way you're talking about it, which I love that fact. So for somebody who maybe is newer into geocaching, do you have any recommendations for them on how they can really 
get involved and grow in their geocaching community? I think it's first off very important that again, when there's events and you guys aren't having them right now, but when there's events, go to the event, meet those other caches that are hiding the caches that you're looking for. Um, putting out caches is important, but the, the guidelines talk about not putting out a cache till you've hidden, I think they say 50. We always recommend about 100. And when we see a new cacher throw out a cache too early, they don't necessarily understand the techniques, the things that they should do, the, the ability to get the coordinates precise, because you want people to be able to find it. And we, we will see a new cache come out by a brand new cacher, and it might be four or 500 feet off, which means the person looking for it's not gonna find it. They're gonna have trouble finding it. Um, but those are things that come with having done, done more caching and interacting with more people. And I, and I think that's important. Again, it's unfortunate that we have these times where events aren't being held, but when they are being held, you learn it. Or if you have someone that you, that's an experienced cacher that you go caching with, that you can kind of learn the tricks, the trade off of them. One of the things that I think is real important for new cachers, and we certainly welcome them, one of the things I really would suggest is the fact that don't just download the app and then just start. Take the time to really watch the videos of what they suggest for taking and doing and caching, how to use the, the app if you're using an app so that you understand all the parts of the app and how, how important those things are. Um, we had some an example. We had some young men who were going through and they were new cashers and they were going out and hiding caches and they were hiding a lot of them. And we'd be going out and they weren't at the spot that they said. So as experienced cashers, one of the things that we end up doing is we go, okay, we kind of start circling out 50 feet a hundred feet around from where their ground zero is, that's very frustrating for cashers and stuff for anyone trying to find a cache. And, you know, and we're experienced, so we at least kind of go, okay, this looks like a good spot that we might be the place to do it. Well, one of the things we asked them and talked with them about, they came to our event and we talked to them and we says, well, how exactly do you get coordinates for your cache? Well, we place it, then we go back home and we use our computer and three different mapping programs to give us coordinates. They haven't even used their phone to give them the coordinates. And when I says, okay, show me how you go through and find coordinates. So they bring up the app, which is fine. And when you put it in for a cache, it always brings up the map. And it goes through and you click on the file and you navigate and it gives you the map. And it tells you as far as how far away you are. Well, that's fine, but it doesn't tell you a direction necessarily, yeah. especially when you get close. So I sat there, I go, do you know, this little symbol up here says it's a compass. If you click on that, it will show you the direction you have. Oh my gosh, that's so much easier. And then I said, and if you look at the bottom, it actually gives you the coordinates of where you are at and where you're trying to go. And they go, oh my gosh, you mean I could have found my coordinates right here? I go, yes, you can. <laughs> and, there, and there's an accuracy on the GPSs, depending on how good the satellite um, signal is and you know what's the coverage and how many trees are in the way and all that, it'll say you know, your, your coordinates are accurate plus or minus 50 feet or plus or minus 20 feet or plus or minus 200 feet. And those are things that if you've cached a while, you start learning, those sort of things matter, the, the precision of what you're looking for. And again, these folks, and they didn't know it, not because they're dumb, but because they had no opportunity to learn that. And, and it was just a matter of letting them know, you know, look here, see what this says? It says this little number, it says plus or minus. Yeah, but I didn't know what that meant. Well, that tells you how accurate your coordinates are. Oh, it could be off by 75 feet. Well, yeah, that's quite a distance when you're looking at a circle that would be nice for you know, new cashers, I know that they enjoy it, but take the time to go and learn how the app is utilized, you know, go through those videos. They're only, the videos are only like five minutes long or ask and talk to someone else 
to go through and do it. And we've gone through and made a point of if something is off, we try and contact the owner. And then we say, you know what, we're more than happy to come out and help show you how to get more accurate coordinate and stuff. And so sometimes we get a good result and sometimes, well, nope, they're just not interested. And so, you know, we go, okay, and stuff. But what they find is then they get frustrated because no one wants to find their caches. Well, you know, why should I go out and waste an hour and not find a cache when I have no idea where the coordinates are? So that's one of the things that, you know, for new cachers, you know, take the time to, to do a little research and do some playing with the coordinates before you try and place something. That's great advice. It really is. You've mentioned you've hosted a couple different events. How many events have you hosted? Do you know offhand? I think 150 or something through the years. Wow. An awful lot through the years. But they, you know, they become social events. Um, some of them were in relationship to placing out a group of new caches or having them at a given facility. Sometimes when we were traveling, we wanted to, we wanted to be able to log an event in a given place. We were in um, know, Latvia or someplace, but we wanted to be able to log an event in Latvia. So we hosted one so that somebody show up so we could, could log an event in Latvia. And it gives us a chance to meet the local and meet cashers. The local too. cashers. So sometimes we've done it. Other times when we were traveling, we might contact a cashier in a certain area. Uh, we did one in Wyoming. It was a cashier that we had contact with before. We said, geez, we're going to be out there those days. We'd like to do an event. And we kind of started out with, could you recommend a place to host it or a place to hold it? And often they'll write back and tell you what, we'll, we'll host it for you if you'd like. And then you get to attend an event in this place and meet the other local cashers. So, um, so sometimes we're, we're driving that they have an event, but it's, but it, again, it's a chance to meet folks and we've met, met folks all over. Maxine threw an event in Portland, Maine on our way home from a, from Canada one time, a week later, she hosted an event in Portland, Oregon, because they were doing the, um, ape event. the ape event out there. And, she wanted to get to an event in Portland and meet some friends. So she had two events in Maine and Oregon exactly a week apart. Do you have any advice for anybody who might be toying with the idea of creating an event? Um, really, the primary thing is sort of plan out early. You don't have to make it into a huge, a huge thing. Find a place that you can meet in today's times. Find a place you can meet safely with folks. And, and publish it and get it out there. And if you get it out a little bit earlier, that gives people time to plan on it. And I, I, most of the time, I think events sort of take care of themselves. They come in, be there, make sure you're there at, your, you know, at the event, um, answer questions people might have about you know, exactly where it is. We, we just had a um, New Year's Eve event and the guy tried to time the New Year's Eve event to be when the you know, when the midnight was at the international dateline and the way he worded it, we weren't hundred percent sure we were supposed to be at his place on new year's Eve or on new year's day, um, because of the, you know, the timing of it. And so we just sent a note and said, okay, you need to, you need to clarify for us because you know, we don't want to miss it. We don't want to be in the wrong spot, but, um, we know new year's Eve at the international datelines quite a few hours different than it is here. Midnight there is different than it is here. Do you have any current travel bug tours that you have going on right now? Uh, really not. We've not traveled a lot just lately. I've got, I've got an illness going on, so I'm not sure when we're going to get to travel you know, again. In fact, we just the event we did this weekend was to take some travel bugs we had in our possession and get them distributed around so they wouldn't be sitting in our basement. They'd be getting out to other, other folks. And with the pandemic, it's so hard to know what, states are open and what's available and stuff. So until the pandemic really kind of slows way down and gets where you can um, travel again safely and we really don't have any plans until that point. So it's kind of plans right now. Yeah. I've got another story that I'd like to share if you if you're interested. I'd love to hear it. Um, back in 2004, at the end of March, I was in Los Angeles on business. 
And I, I very commonly from the West Coast took a red-eye flight home. Um, just the timing of travel, I could fly overnight, get back to Chicago early in the morning and then get on home. And so after my day's work out there, I went out around the Los Angeles area and picked up, picked up several. Got to the hotel and called Maxine with the travel bug number so she could start, start logging them. Got to the airport. Yeah, I got to the airport. I turned in my car and I'm at the airport. So these travel bugs are coming to Michigan with me at this point. And she's, oh, that one, that one wanted to stay in Los Angeles. And they didn't have papers with them. I didn't know. Ooh, that one wanted to go west on to Hawaii. And that one wanted to go somewhere else. But it's like, okay, it's too late. I said, okay, log them. But log, they're joining Max B's Around the World Tour. So one of the travel bugs I picked up was a little Millennium Falcon toy, a little little Star Wars toy. And so got home the next day and we laid, I mean, corny props. We had this, you know, little Hawaiian tiki statue thing. And so we laid out the travel bugs in a, in a chair and we stuck in the tiki thing and then we pulled it out and we had a little Japanese trinket souvenir type thing. We put it in the chair. We pulled it out and we had a, um, a something from China and we had something from Egypt and something from Germany and France probably and, and England and then Statue of Liberty and, and wrote this very, very long log about, you know, your travel bug has traveled all these things around the world. But of course, with the, the way that the ground speak computers calculate it, it really only shows distance from you know, point A to point B. It's not going to show the around the world distance. It's only going to show it from California back to Michigan. And after this very long story, now again, I've flown overnight from the end of March. It's now April 1st. So ended up this huge long log with, you know, April fools. <laughs> and um, one of the guys that owned one of these travel bugs was a guy by the name of Tommy Trojan out of California. He had issued more travel bug than anybody else in the world. He was the travel, the top owner of travel bugs. And we ended up becoming very close friends with him. But he was so tickled that, you know, his travel bug was on this tour. Because, you know, they take him on a tour. And his, you know, had done this. And he just, you know, loved that and the pictures, even though they were corny. And they, they were corny. But he, he, he really enjoyed that. So one of the things he gave us on a future trip, I, I, I met up with him on future trips is he gave us a, a stuffed Mickey Mouse from the early days of Disney. And it was a um, made up like the, the Disney tour guides. They wore these plaid jackets in, in those days and um, called it Mickey the tour guide. And he gave it to us to be our tour guide for our tours. And so Mickey would get, find its way into the pictures of different tour groups at different times. And again, uh, such a such a fine gentleman who who really loved his travel bugs, and he you know, almost treated them like you know like kids. You know, this this is Minnie the you know mouse, and you know, he wants to go this way. So this was so that was one of our our fun tour things that really was happenstance because I picked up something and had to had to save face from you know we're at the airport and they're going the wrong direction. That's that's a fun story. <laughs> I love how you were able to turn into an April Fool's joke like that. So just a quick note, the cash highlight for this episode is the cash that was archived. So you're not going to hear the spoiler warning. Don't panic. Unfortunately, you're not going to be able to go out and find this one, but it sounded like it was really awesome. So I hope you enjoy the story. Well, every episode I do a cash highlight and you sent me the name of a cash that I don't think I can pronounce this properly. <laughs> so I'm just going to turn it over to you. Yeah, the cache is die Grand Wolf. The Gray Wolf is what it would translate to. And it was based on the U-boats of World War II, the German U-boats. And they were using this Enigma cipher. There's actually been a movie on it in more recent years. But there was an Enigma cipher that the Allies had trouble breaking, but finally did, did break the code. Um, to kind of get an edge on, you know, these boats were sinking ships all over the North Atlantic, um, these submarines. And um, 
so again, this was in Netherlands. We were on our way, I think, to Bahrain for our son's wedding and ended up with a couple day layover in the Netherlands and had a chance to go caching. And there were some caching friends that we'd made because they'd been here in Michigan who were kind enough to take us under their wing a little bit. And so the cache was a puzzle cache, um, this Enigma cipher, and there was an online app that you could decode the, the cipher, and then it was in Dutch. Um, but these friends of ours were kind enough to help us translate the Dutch. And it said, go to North, you know, 51.47 point blah, 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 and West, blah, 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 or East, blah, 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 I guess it would be there, um, which took us to the edge of one of the canals outside of Amsterdam. And so we get to the spot and it says, you will need a bicycle pump, but no fear, one will be nearby. So we get to the spot, look around a little bit, and sure enough, over a little picket fence, there's a bicycle pump leaning against a shed there. And here somebody might have stole it, but there, but it's there. And then it says, look for the air valve. So barely sticking through the slat in the fence is that is the air valve, the end of the air valve. And it says pump six times. And out of the canal floated a model U-boat that was about four foot long. And it, you know, up it floats, and the conning tower opens. And inside the conning tower is a little waterproof container with the log in it. And so you could log the, log the cache. And when you were done, you put the conning tower back and you let the air back out and it sunk down. And being a canal rather than a river, there's no force on it. So there's no downstream pull on it. And it floated back into place. And that was what we thought was the coolest cache we did. And it's, you know, it's since been archived, but it was a, it was a pretty cool cache. Wow, <laughs> I have not yet found a cache quite like that. That is that is really awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. <laughs> and more recently, one of the things that happened, um, West Virginia Tim was really the first person who really did what are called now gadget caches. Mm -hmm. And he goes through and he does videos on how to go and create gadget caches. So it's, it's very nice and some of the work that people have gone and put into doing gadget caches and creating gadget caches is um, very unique and it is a lot of fun. I don't know the GC number, but it's up north of uh, Milwaukee and it's called the TARDIS, which is the um, booth that's in, what is it, Dr. Um, at Doctor Who? Doctor yeah. Who, yes, yes. The one that goes, you go into the booth and then you go to other places. Anyhow, there's one that's set up there that you have to go through and solve a, a um, one of the- Simon Says Simon Games. Simon Says Games, where you have to follow the, the colors and things. And that's a very cool cache. One of the things that's, that geocaching did do that was really nice was when they allowed people to put on favorite points Favorite points on a cache means it's a cache that's well worth your time to go to and yeah. do because it's either a gadget cache or it's a very cool location or, you know, it's something that is many cachers now use that as a point of interest when they're traveling that they want to make sure and do those types of caches. Yeah, I, I wish they would come up with a, a gadget cache attribute that you can search for. That would be nice. <laughs> That's really but look, cool. look for favorite points. Use you probably know this, use favorite points as an end you might want to go do that cache. If it's got a bunch of favorite points, there's a reason for it. Now these are other caches who've seen it that think that cache is cool for whatever reason they think so. Um, but it but it's it's a good indicator as you travel. And you know, it, 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 I mean it's taken us to some awesome places that we wouldn't have seen. It's taken us to some interesting caches. It's taken us to some caches that we couldn't figure out how to do, but that's fine too. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I, I really do appreciate it. I've had so much fun talking to you. I, I could just sit here and listen to you talk and tell me I, you have some amazing stories. Thank you so much for sharing them with us today. Thank you, Thank Thank you, for, you for having for us. Hope, hope you enjoyed it. Hope your listeners enjoyed it. You've been listening to Geocache Adventures with me, Shadow Dragon One. If you'd like to get in touch, you can reach out to me on Facebook, 
Instagram or go to geocacheadventures.org and you can find the information on the contact page. Theme music is by The Travel Bugs. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Have you heard of FTF Magazine? It's the magazine for geocachers. It is full of articles and pictures all submitted by geocachers just like you. I'm a subscriber myself and I love it. My favorite part is the little snippets on the edges of the articles on all the different pages. Those are my favorites. Just go to ftfgeo.com to check them out and tell them Shadow Dragon 1 sent you. 